Support comes from ServiceNow, the AI platform for business transformation. You've heard the hype around AI. The truth is, AI is only as powerful as the platform it's built into. ServiceNow is the platform that puts AI to work for people across your business, removing friction and frustration for your employees, supercharging productivity for your developers, providing intelligent tools for your service agents to make customers happier. All built into a single platform you can use right now. That's why the world works with ServiceNow. Visit servicenow.com slash AI for people to learn more. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hey, it's Matea reminding you that this show cannot be made without you. If you've been thinking about becoming a Canada Land supporter, we're having a pretty great sale right now. You'll get premium ad-free feeds of all Canada Land shows, discounts on merch from our store, and exclusive bonus episodes, like a behind-the-scenes tour of the federal budget lockup, more of Boris Johnson's trip to Canada, and of course, more of us yapping about what's hot in politics right now. We want to make it as easy as possible for you to become a Canada Land supporter. So from now until the end of May, we have a special offer for our listeners. Sign up now for just $2 a month for the next six months. Just go to canadaland.com slash join or click the link in your show notes to become a supporter today. Hey, it's Riley Yesno filling in for Matea, and this is The Backbench, a podcast about Canadian politics and the AI revolution. Dun, dun, dun. Today, AI seems to be coming for us, whether we like it or not. Have we missed the boat on regulating it? And is immigration policy going to save our economy or break it? Joining me this week, a writer, author, shit disturber, and more, David Mosscrop. It's always wonderful having you on. It's very nice to be here. Thanks. And Nicholas Kyung, immigration reporter from the Toronto Star. Excited to have you here first time. Yes, thanks for uh, having me. I uh, look forward to my debut. <laughs> Megan Simpson, former business and tech journalist. Thanks for having me back. Now let's get into it. You're listening to The Backbench, and we're going to talk about artificial intelligence. By now, you've definitely heard about AI and how it's going to change the world. But many people are still worried that this might not be a good thing. More and more experts are expressing growing concerns. ChatGPT, deepfakes, algorithmic discrimination, potential job losses. To be clear, I am not a true AI hater. I know there are benefits, advances in cancer screening, making agriculture more efficient, language processing, and increasing access to vast amounts of information. And I'll also admit I would be nothing without tools that edit my grammar for me. In Canada, Bill C-27 is the proposed legislation meant to regulate this phenomenon. Within the bill, ADA, the Artificial Intelligence and Data Act, looks to deal specifically with the AI portion of digital safety. ADA's main aim is to establish a framework for responsible development and deployment of AI technologies. 
It's meant to guide AI innovation in a, quote, positive direction and aims to, quote, prohibit reckless and malicious uses of AI. To do this, ADA will establish a commissioner who will be responsible for the oversight and enforcement of the AI sector. Critics argue that this language is rather vague. Some have even described it as a parliamentary blank check. But on the other hand, supporters argue that AI seems to be moving too quickly to spend so much time getting caught up in the details. Specific details can easily become sticking points for some politicians, which slows down the process as they try to pass the bill through. This has happened elsewhere. In the EU, for example, legislation was introduced in 2021, but has been delayed by proposed amendments. We've heard from AI experts and whistleblowers warning us of the potential dangers and hear their calls for regulation, and even to put the brakes on some of the new products coming out. I think there are things to be worried about. There's all the normal things that everybody knows about, but there's another threat that's rather different from those, which is if we produce things that are more intelligent than us, how do we know we can keep control? And what's special about these systems and others that we might build in coming months and years is that they can pass for a human if you have a conversation with them. And that's where it gets dangerous. But for proponents of AI, they say the looming threat of regulation unfairly stigmatizes their innovation. Canada is, after all, a world leader in the field of AI. Would regulation impair this leadership? There's no doubt that AI is already a significant part of our lives, probably in ways we're not even cognizant of. And it's not going anywhere. But how scared should we be? Let's get into it. I want to start with you, Megan. What are your first impressions of the regulation strategy in ADA? Yeah, so I've been covering Canadian tech broadly, but AI has been a really big topic this year. Bit of an AI zeitgeist, if you will, whether it's, you know, from ChatGPT, deepfakes like, you know, the Pope in a puffer coat, all these things, right? Like people are getting really excited about AI, but there's also this level of concern. When you have what essentially are like the godfathers of AI, the people that created this technology and helped develop it for many years, step back and now say, hey, I'm actually, you know, we got to talk about this. There's some things that are happening here. I'm warning you guys. There's something going on here, right? And interestingly enough, ADA is not a response to this, right? ADA was actually introduced last June before there was any Jeffrey Hinton stepping down from Google (laughs) to talk about AI before Yashua Bengio, a renowned AI leader globally and here in Montreal, was leading open letters saying, hey, guys, we're concerned, right? So ADA is not a response to any of this. I think that's a really important thing to note. I think people are pretty aware of the biases that AI can create, all this kind of stuff, right? But I think what's important is that there is conversation happening about it. There was an open letter that was led by Yashua Bengio, who leads Mila, which is a Montreal AI institute. And there was a bunch of other Canadian tech CEOs and AI leaders who signed this and said, we need to push Ada through. We can make amendments later. There will be changes, but things are happening so rapidly we need it. If the leaders are saying that, I think that's something we need to listen to. There's definitely a need for something. It seems the, like, what and the specific is where the tension is. And that tension also makes sense to me because it doesn't seem like there's much of a precedent here for people to go on and learn from. We're all—all countries are kind of trying to figure this out. To that point, David, the proposed legislation here is this open-ended, non-specific approach. What do you think are the pros and cons of this that immediately come to your mind? This is an old problem with democracies, is that democracies 
often, not universally, but often get caught moving slightly more slowly than the thing that they're trying to grapple with. In some cases, much, much, much more slowly to the point where they don't even start thinking about it until long after it's become a significant problem. But even once they recognize it's a problem, they've got to slow down because they have to go through democratic processes that incidentally can often be reversed after the fact if there's a change in government or even in this case, a change in ministry, say a new prime minister from the same party might want to do things differently. So democracies are often full of of challenges that relate to these sort of sticky points that emerge in our institutions, which are often good because often we kind of want to slow down and think about some things. And then sometimes we want to speed up because uh, the thing is looming. And I have to say, you know, I've spent a a lot of time reading and thinking about this. I've paid pretty close attention to Michelle Rempel-Gardner, who's done probably the most and best work of any parliamentarian on this. Welcome to the future, people. It's here. What happens in the middle of this recessionary crisis when costs of goods are increasing, people are losing their jobs, and a massive amount of white-collar jobs are displaced by ChatGPT? But you see a constant tension, which is, my dear God, we have to do something about this, and my dear God, we have to get it right. And those two things are often in in a significant conflict because doing it fast doesn't necessarily mean doing it right. Governments for a long time in this country have often sort of said implicitly in bills, well, we'll figure it out at the regulatory stages after the fact, trust us. And opposition parties, and in fact, the Senate, often come back and say, well, you know what, we don't trust you. How about you give us the details now? So it's not like this is unprecedented, but that means trusting the government. And a lot of people don't want to trust the government, especially on something like this. And as, as Michelle Rempel-Garner and others have pointed out, it does send the thing behind closed doors, which means we don't really necessarily have a say on what happens and whether or not it's good. And then we're, we're left trying to figure it out long after the fact through protests, through opposition bills, or through elections. So it's not ideal. I distrust giving the government a blank check. That said, I also distrust saying to Parliament, do as you please, because you're going to end up like the EU four years on, hundreds of pages into the document with nothing to show for it in an industry that's fast outpacing the government's capacity to regulate it. I want to turn also, and I'm going to start with Nick, but this is a question I think all of you might have some stakes in because, you know, as writers, as thought leaders, perhaps, like, those are the industries where AI is supposed to have a particularly large impact. Nick, what makes you particularly worried about AI and what makes you excited about AI? I'm quite actually resistant to technological advancement myself because I belong to the old school journalism. You know, I started off with the uh, the Green Monitor, you know, when I found my story. That's how old, you know, I am without, you know, disclosing my age. But what is interesting, you know, I've been covering immigration the last two decades and you see the, the evolution of technological advancement, even in terms of the processing, you know, there has been a lot of predictive analytics being adopted to flag applications. We just, you know, sometimes don't realize, even for someone like myself, is not on top of technologies. Like, we don't realize, you know, how involved, you know, the use of AI is actually all around us, right? And I feel like definitely, you know, even just on the immigration front, there's a lot of uh, need for transparency. I think that's really important. How? Because obviously AIs, you know, it's, it's based on my understanding is like it's taught by humans what to look for, how to an- analyze. And I think, you know, it's really important for us to know how those algorithms actually being written or coded, uh, what criteria is being used. And I think that's what's something that we as ordinary citizens, we need to push the government for transparency. What really is best for Canadians? We need to have that as a bottom line. 
I think for me, the interesting aspect is, again, with this kind of zeitgeist of AI this year, people really thinking about it, it kind of seems new, but it's not. For me, there's not like, I'm like, oh, there's this one thing that I'm really excited about or this one thing that I'm really worried about. Of course, I'm worried about, you know, particularly harms and biases and that kind of stuff. But for me, AI is all around us already, right? It's everywhere, whether you're using a TikTok filter, right? I wouldn't get by without Grammarly, you know, like all these sort of things. AI is already around us. And I think what's happening right now is it's become more mainstream and people are starting to recognize it a lot more. This is not the first time we've had a conversation about ethical AI, how to regulate AI. The really interesting thing here, and David mentioned MP Michelle Rempel earlier, her and Senator Colin Deacon, who's also been kind of big and advocating for a lot of different tech issues for many years, have created a cross-party working group to try and understand AI. And that's, I think, the thing that's needed as well. A lot of the government leaders aren't going to understand how AI really works, right? No one really understands how AI works. I think everyone gets really confused about what it is. It's a prediction machine that builds off of the data that we currently have existing in our world. Yeah, I feel like, you know, our understanding and knowledge of AI has already gone beyond the initial concerns of privacy concerns to now is really about how it's being used, how it's being adopted, what could be the potential impacts. And I think, you know, that in a way that progression is good, that we have more awareness, more knowledge. Now we're into a different phase that we are demanding accountability of the usage and the adoption of those technologies. That word accountability is like a question I have when looking at this legislation is like, so say that there is some sort of, you know, what is deemed reckless AI development or deployment, who becomes accountable for that? Is it the companies? Is it the developers? Is it the data, you know, collection sets? I'm curious who you think this accountability goes towards and what that looks like. I think the the accountability mechanism will be worked out over the years to come through a mix of social political norms, legislation, and litigation. I mean, the fact is, they'll just there's going to be so much litigation that emerges from this. There already is, but there's going to be plenty and plenty more and more and more of it, and it'll get worked out through the legal system. Of course, AI isn't just a standalone thing; it intersects with all of our existing laws. So, if you're a fraudster using AI, as others have suggested, there are criminal laws against fraud. So, we're going to see that there are intellectual property laws. So, if you're using AI to exploit copyright, you're going to be busted for copyright violations. Incidentally, I think if we you know, loosened copyright, we could probably have a lot of fun with AI and copyright. Uh, but under the current regime, there you have it. There are, there are existing laws, so that that'll all get sorted out. But I think that speaks to a, a broader issue. To sort of borrow a line from Foucault, I mean, it's it's not good or bad. It's just potentially dangerous at the end of the day, right? There's going to be good bits. There's going to be bad bits. But to me, the, the fundamental question is, okay, well, this thing as a technology is potentially dangerous in all kinds of ways. And we ought to start from the position of how do we wrap our heads around trying to manage that danger. We don't have to worry about the good. We have to worry about the dangerous bits. That can be everything from ripping off authors who are trying to make it through the day, right? Who are having their stuff stolen and incorporated into the gaping maw of, of AI, which is already happening. Artists as well. You could have privacy violations. You can have crushing industries and leaving workers out of work with nowhere to go. You know, both blue collar and, and white collar is a problem we've been struggling with for a very, very long time. And government's not being able to respond quickly to that. We can have misinformation and disinformation spreading through it. All kinds of things. So we need to really wrap our heads around this potential dangers. 
Barring government regulation, are there other tools that we have to try and deal with the future of AI, either as individuals or in your workplace? You know, I've seen situations where people are trying to, for example, teach, especially older generations, like how to recognize deep fakes. What sort of tools do people have on the ground outside of legislation? I think it's interesting. I was born and raised in Hong Kong, so it has a more culture of accepting the authorities, what they you are told to do. What I find interesting is, you know, here, you know, in any democracy, I think personal responsibility is being highlighted, you know, in, in this culture. And certainly I feel as an individual, I, you know, even though you can't really teach, you know, old dogs new tricks, you know, I'm one of those old dogs, but you know, I think you know, it is my personal responsibility to keep myself updated, you know, keep reading, not get intimidated by reading what the hell is, you know, AI or some of those latest, you know, AI tools, not feel intimidated and take the time to learn myself to stay updated with the, the world. The one thing that I'll add, just being a former business reporter, and I'm not going to now hype a bunch of private companies and say that they're the savior. I'm not going to do that. But what I will say is when I talk to people, when I talk to business leaders, what they're saying is we're not trying to develop biased AI. That's not our goal. We're not trying to do harmful things with AI, the majority, right? You know, especially the businesses, the small businesses that I'm speaking in to in Canada that are that are using or creating AI. And the interesting thing is they've been talking, like I said, these are not new conversations around regulation and ethical AI. Like these are conversations that when I speak to leaders and and lawyers, they're saying these are conversations that we are already having with businesses on how do we create ethical AI? How do we make sure that we aren't creating harm with what we're doing, right? So I'm not going to sit here and say that private companies are the solution to everything. We, we know what we know about Googles of the world. But, you know, I think the majority of these time, I think one thing that can make us feel a little bit better is these companies aren't trying to come at this in a negative way. And regardless of government regulation or not, the majority are probably going to be thinking about this in a positive aspect. How can we make sure that we're not creating harm? I think the state has to be the primary vehicle for managing this. I mean, that's it's going to do the yeoman's work because it is the thing that has the power to set the rules of the game, and the rest of us can't. But it's going to be a, a battle because even some companies who deploy AI for good or for even neutral ends could end up doing incidental harm too, which is something we have to watch for. I will flag this final point, though. A lot of this proceeds on the internet with people being like, oh, this is cool. I'm going to do this thing and show it off online. And we're unwittingly or semi-wittingly part of the AI development process because we are generating data that is then used to iterate. If we could spend a little bit more time as, as a collective entity thinking about our role in sort of incidentally building this thing without even thinking about it, I think that would go a long way to producing better AI because right now it's just clicking and sharing cool stuff. Um, but there's a, it's a little more insidious than, than that. This episode is brought to you by Athletic Greens. AG1 by Athletic Greens is something I take every day to make sure I'm starting off on the right foot. It's packed with 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, and whole food-sourced ingredients. I love to toss AG1 into smoothies. It gives me an extra boost and tastes great. Throw in some bananas, some pineapple, maybe some strawberries. Maybe you've got a stew going. You're really making sure you're getting all the vitamins, minerals, and nutrients you need to treat your body right. You can also just take your AG1 with water, which is a way to make sure you're staying hydrated for the day. AG1 is a foundational nutritional drink that replaces a lot of other supplements like a daily multivitamin, minerals, 
pre and probiotics, oh, that's too much. AG1 gives it all to you in just one scoop of powder. If you're looking for a simpler and cost-effective supplement routine, Athletic Greens is giving you a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. Go to athleticgreens.com backbench. That's athleticgreens.com backbench. Check it out. Now it's time for private members' bills, the part of the show where we let our panelists set the agenda for once. Without further ado, I'd like to call on the honorable member from Ottawa South to introduce a private members' bill. Speaker, I am utterly honored to have this opportunity to table an extraordinary important bill. It's almost summer, which means it's almost summer reads season. Oh, yeah. Uh, last year, my favorite summer read was Top Gun 2. <laughs> Yeah, And I, I would love to see it come back. But in the absence of rescreening of the second Top Gun, a uh, flawless film, I would like to see the return of big, hulking, serialized novels. Ooh. My favorite summer read is The Count of Monte Cristo. It runs to about 1,200 pages. It's about the size of a cinder block, and it weighs about as much. But it is a rip-roaring good time. <laughs> so I, I would like to, to appropriate some money I'm a little biased as a writer, but let's say $40 billion to fund more serialized novels because it's like, it's, it's like anticipating a show. You know how you're, like, you're excited for the next episode of Ted Lasso or Succession or Only Murders in the Building or, or whatever, The Last of Us? But it's like that with a, with a book, and I don't think you can beat that. So let's, let's bring back the serialized banger of a novel. Also, let's bring back Top Gun because I want to see it again in theater. <laughs> A one-two punch of serialized novels and Top Gun. You know, I feel like if we dig around uh, the coin purse, maybe in the couch cushions, we'll be able to come up with that $40 billion for you. And now we'll hear from the Honorable Member from Mississauga Street View. Honorable Speaker, I would like to table a bill to require all the newly elected MPs here required to spend a week in Daring Gaps, uh, which is... Uh, the infamous route that a lot of uh, Latin American refugees actually cross into North America. I tabled the bill because I want, you know, decision makers to have the opportunity to actually experience the migration journeys a lot of the quote-unquote irregular migrants actually have to go through to a land of safety. And I wish you know, I could have your, you know, the, the unanimous uh, support of my colleagues. Mm. You know, no protests from me. I know I technically I guess the speaker doesn't really get to vote, but I in this instance I'm overriding everyone. So perfect. <laughs> Support comes from ServiceNow, the AI platform for business transformation. You've heard the hype around AI. The truth is AI is only as powerful as the platform it's built into. ServiceNow is the platform that puts AI to work for people across your business, removing friction and frustration for your employees, supercharging productivity for your developers, providing intelligent tools for your service agents to make customers happier, all built into a single platform you can use right now. That's why the world works with ServiceNow. Visit servicenow.com slash AI for people to learn more. Canada needs more people. Canadians understand the need to continue to grow our population if we're going to meet the needs of the labor force. Uh, my view is that Canada is uniquely positioned in the world uh, to use immigration to achieve these outcomes. 
You know, immigration in Canada is not just something that we do, it's, it's who we are, it's, it's who we've always been. The population of this country grew by more than one million last year, a boom the likes of which Canada has never seen before. According to new statistics out today, the historic growth is largely attributed to immigration. Canada's population surged by more than one million people in the past year, the largest spike since the post-World War II baby boom. But beyond being a boost to Canada's population, the conversation around immigration has always been deeply tied to the economy. And this seems to be especially heightened as of late. Immigration Minister Sean Fraser says without immigration, Canada could not maximize its economic potential. From 2016 to 2021, immigrants accounted for almost 80% of the growth in Canada's labor force. And during the application process to immigrate to Canada, there's an entire immigration stream dedicated to economic development. Immigrants admitted under the economic category are selected based upon their potential economic contribution to meet labor market needs or to create economic opportunities by owning, operating, or investing in a business or through self-employment. In 2021, more than half of recent immigrants living in Canada were admitted under the economic category, either as the principal applicant or the dependent. So where exactly does the tension in this conversation lie? On one hand, some people, politicians included, seem to think immigration is a magic pill for our economy. On the other hand, we hear voices saying immigrants are to be blamed for this country's economic-related failures, such as housing shortages and soaring costs of living. Framing immigration policy primarily around economic development has drastically changed the conversation. How do we make sense of this? And what is the impact of this contention on immigrants themselves? So, David, what are the key factors that you think are contributing to this changing rhetoric around immigration and changing by, I mean, I think for a long time and, and certainly still for some people, there was a huge emphasis on we love multiculturalism. Immigrants are part of this multicultural identity that Canada you know, likes to tout. And more and more we are seeing people taking more of an economic lens as opposed to a cultural social lens about it. And what do you think is causing that and what might the impacts be? I think there's a whole bunch of things going on in, in equal measure and, and, and disparate measure from xenophobia and racism, which are so fundamentally a part of this country's fabric and is, are often papered over or ignored, even though there is a broad consensus around immigration. Uh, it's not universal. This country is still fundamentally, deeply, in many ways, racist and xenophobic, and we can't forget that. There's also the fact that cynical politicians are taking up anti-immigrant or immigrant critical rhetoric and deploying it for a cynical political gain at, on the backs of, of uh, immigrants. And, and not just immigrants, but, you know, migrants who are coming to this country under a, a variety of circumstances. If, if you look at the recent amendment to the Safe Third Country Agreement, that the bargain over uh, regular border crossings, the rhetoric around that was was deeply xenophobic and anti-humanitarian, and it was deployed by politicians who knew that was going to play with some folks, including centrist politicians. I'm not just talking about the right. And that um, has a cascading effect and undermines broader immigration goals and makes life harder for immigrants. There's you know, interprovincial bickering. The fact is, you know, migration is not just a federal issue. It's a provincial issue and a local issue as well, especially when it comes to resettling folks. So there's a lot of tension there that's making things worse. And the final thing I'll note is I remember at the start of the pandemic, I spoke to a colleague and friend of mine, uh, Dr. Yvonne Sue, And this is when we were banging pots and pans for folks and talking about mutual aid and solidarity. And, and she said to me, just wait, just wait a couple of months. 
We're all in it. We're all in this together now. But when the battle for resources and scarcity starts to ramp up and people start to get tired, things are going to change and they're going to change fast and it's going to get nasty. And by God, if that wasn't exactly what happened. And I think as soon as there's a tension around scarcity, for instance, of healthcare, of housing, of jobs, whatever it might be, people start looking around for people to blame. And it's awfully easy and convenient to blame migrants, especially if politicians are out there willing to sell those folks out for a couple of points in the polls. And so I think there's a lot of that going on right now, too. And it's creating a a real dangerous environment for for newcomers who, incidentally, um, we've quite somewhat cynically, by the way, rely on for this uh, for this country to to exist and to grow, a country that exists and continues to exist on uh, both stolen and unceded land, which is an, uh, a point that never uh, never escapes my analysis when I when I have a chance to bring it up. I feel that. And thank you for bringing it up. As, you know, an indigenous person living on my territories, there will be nothing that gets me going quite like people saying, oh, but no, immigrants aren't allowed here, as if the title <laughs> is theirs to make. Nick, I want to turn to you quickly because I know this is your your field of expertise. Some critics are saying that there are challenges posed to the economy because of immigrants. Are those accusations founded, how can we have a conversation about this without having immigrants take the brunt of it? I think the tension is between, you know, we now have a labor and skill shortage in Canada. You know, we've heard government officials talking about, you know, how immigration is the panacea, you know, to, to solve all these problems. Right before, you know, everything was starting to talk, I would ask business leaders and CEOs, you know, you guys really worried about, you know, a recession, all that kind of stuff. They go, no, we're just trying to access talent. And one of the biggest things a lot of tech uses or would like to use more international talent. There are specific federal government and provincial government streams just to bring in highly skilled workers into Canada because we need them. They're going to help with, to tie this back to our original topic, things like AI, right? A lot of the, you know, biggest researchers and brains in, in this area, like tech and business really kind of rely on these immigrant, highly skilled immigrant workers to come in and help us build up our workforce because we don't have enough. There's a huge brain drain and we kind of need more workers. A lot of international tech companies come to Canada and look for our workers and we we don't have enough. We need kind of these workers. So the economic value that is provided there, I think, is the first thing that comes to my mind. You know, in other countries, they, they have to solve the immigration problems. But here, traditionally, Canada, you know, use immigration to solve all problems. But right now, we, I think the question is whether we have, you know, reached that crossroads. And I think it's a, a big concern for starting to get a lot of academics and advocates concerned when you have even politicians now talking a little bit more about, you know, are we doing the right thing to bring in that many immigrants. I think right now the public debate is still about focus on the, the quantity, the number. We have already seen finger pointing at immigrants for causing the housing crisis. I think, you know, whether it's in the media or, you know, for policymakers, there's always this tendency to oversimplify an issue to make it like a black and white issue then, you know, it's a gray and nuanced, you know, situation. Obviously, newcomers, you know, I interview who arrived recently, they are personally impacted, you know, by the housing crisis. A lot of them, you know, haven't had a job yet, but yet, you know, they have to fork out, you know, $2,500 a month for rent. 
I find not enough is being discussed, for example, just on the housing crisis about, you know, municipal policies, provincial and federal housing policies that over the years have led to the problem of the lack of affordable housing, right? I think, you know, how we can switch that, you know, conversation to really get to do a deep dive into the root of the housing crisis instead of trying to use this as an issue to polarize public opinions, you know, try to find a consensus how to address the problem. If I'm reading your comments correctly, that it's like there are two simultaneous things happening here. One being that, like, we have immigrants coming to this country who need to be here, also need services, also, like, need to be supported in this. And then at the same time, also, we have a housing crisis that's actually a lot to do with municipal policymaking, provincial and federal policymaking that has been done poorly for many, many years, and that a lot of people might be, you know, conflating these two in the wrong ways. One of the things that kind of, you know, bothers me about the way we've talked about this shift towards a more economic-centered conversation around immigration is that I feel like it paints immigrants, of course, like not really as as people, but as ultimately either tools to fix the economy or problems hurting the economy. And like their humanity in, in all of these cases is like watered down for that conversation. How could we go about fixing that? And what kind of harms does that have, you know, to people on the ground who are being used in this way? Increasingly, you know, our immigration is system is about numbers, right? How many we're bringing in. It's about how fast we could process them. And almost like it dehumanized immigrants as an object, as a tool that we use. Okay, we need certain numbers of, you know, immigrants to do this and that. And in terms of the processing, too, these days, because, you know, thanks to AI and all this, you know, technological advancement, you cannot even get, you know, you know, it's hard to get a live person to answer your questions. And I think that's another issue, you know, how the system, quote unquote system itself is becoming more and more distant. Now, you, when you apply for a visa, you apply online, you, you don't get an interview with uh, visa officers, right? I think that actually... I don't know whether it's just an immigration issue or just a societal issue that, you know, because of technology, we don't have those human interactions anymore and everything becomes so, you know, objectified. I don't know, like, whether there's a solution to that, but because there's always tension about, you know, efficiency. David, any thoughts? At a fundamental level, we need to flip or at least rebalance the script when it comes to the narrative about who owes whom what. The popular discourse, and I think implicit in, in, in the government discourse, is we are welcoming you here. It is on you to figure it out and to contribute to this economy. And that's what you're here for, because this is transactional. And the as we sort of pursue economic migrants, and we introduce things like the temporary foreign worker program, and so on and so forth, you see that that's very plainly implicit in the, in the whole system, or you know, for that matter, ex- express. And yet, I, I think we need to rebalance to, to look at it through the lens of what do we owe people who we are welcoming to this country? And I think if you're going to welcome someone to your country, you ought to work awfully hard to make sure they have a safe, clean, appropriate place to live, that they can operate in a community in which they're comfortable, that they can be matched with their skills and get an appropriate job, and that they aren't hounded by racism and xenophobia and so on when they arrive. Now, I think that we owe that to them just first and foremost as human beings. That is the fundamental first reason we owe it to them. And I think that ought to be the reason that Trump's 
any other consideration. But incidentally, we also need these folks. But at the end of the day, there's obviously going to be some sort of transaction. And to the extent that that exists, we are doubly, I think, required to, to coordinate that. But it is fundamentally also a problem of coordination across three levels of government. And when I talk to, to folks who work on um, resettlement, they often sort of say, like, we're under-resourced, we're understaffed, and we're dealing with three levels of government who aren't super good at talking to one another. <laughs> And it creates an awful mess. And that's before you even look and say, plus there's a real tension between Quebec and the rest of Canada when it comes to migration that we also have to navigate. All right, let's adjourn. That's the backbench. Talk again in two weeks when June will finally be upon us and it's Pride Month. If you're following what happens in Ottawa, let us know what you're watching closely, what you'd like to hear us discuss, and what esoteric Canadian politics content you want us to break down. Send us your questions, your concerns, your rants. You can email us backbench at canadaland.com. We're also on Twitter at BackbenchCast. I'm Riley Yesno, and you can find me also on Twitter at Riley Yesno Maybe. David, where can people find you? I have a Substack. It's my name. I am on Twitter. I'm on Blue Sky. I'm on Mastodon. I'm on a secret social media that no one else knows about yet. I'm just kidding. Oh, I've got a book. I've got a book out. You can also look. It's about why we make bad political decisions and how we can make better ones. And it's coming out in audiobook format uh, in the months to come. Megan, where can people find you? People can find me on LinkedIn as Megan Simpson, but I am still also on Twitter, so they can find me at Meg E. Simpson on Twitter. And Nick, where can people find you? I don't want to be found. I'm busy enough to uh, work on my stories. But if you uh, would like to reach out to me, uh, my handle is nkeung, N-K-E-U-N-G, or you can find me on Twitter or the Toronto Star website. This episode was produced by Aviva Lazard and Noura Azrieh, with additional production by Caleb Thompson. Our managing editor is Annette Ajofo. Theme music is by Nathan Burley. If you value this podcast, support us. You'll get premium access to all of our shows ad-free, including early releases and bonus content. You'll also get our exclusive newsletter, discounts on merch, tickets to live and virtual events, and more than anything, you'll be a part of the solution to Canada's journalism crisis. You'll be keeping our work free and accessible to everybody. You can listen ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Thank you for listening. Support comes from ServiceNow, the AI platform for business transformation. You've heard the hype around AI. The truth is, AI is only as powerful as the platform it's built into. ServiceNow is the platform that puts AI to work for people across your business, removing friction and frustration for your employees, supercharging productivity for your developers, providing intelligent tools for your service agents to make customers happier all built into a single platform you can use right now. That's why the world works with ServiceNow. Visit servicenow.com slash AI for people to learn more. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.